0: well hello we meet again you and me we're getting serious right alright if you're not sure what that was all about I'm Colin Pell and I'm the host of the product uncensored show if this is your first time welcome episode 15 is today's episode which means that you have 14 more episodes if you're new and for those who have watched all 14 up till now thank you so much um, don't forget to like follow subscribe and we are also available on all major podcasting platforms so if you prefer to just hear and not see my mug of a face please do so and life will be good for you too today is uh, well I always like to say that every episode is special And today's episode is no different. Um, We usually focus on guests uh, from the Southeast Asia or Asia region. But today, we actually have someone who's outside of it and for good reason. I'll get into it in a little bit, but let me just introduce him first. He's a product leader with experience in the US and the UK. He started off his uh, journey in the music industry. He calls himself a recovering music journalist. He's also one half of the product experience podcast with Mind the Product uh, with Lily Smith. And he also runs the consulting company Out of Owls. Please welcome to the show, Randy Silver.
1: Hey Colin, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. And Lily always gets top billing. That's fine with me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're both equal half. So I will not say who is the most significant other. <laughs> yeah. So for those of you who who like thinking Randy, you know, Lily, they sound familiar. Not so long ago in March, I think, end of March, um, actually, Adrian from uh, BrainMates and myself, we actually got on a show with Randy and Lily to talk about building products in APAC. Um, that show will be in the description as well. So it's great to now turn the table. So I'm the interviewer and he's the guest.
1: It feels so weird being on this side of it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It, 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 yeah. when, when I did it the other way around, like being the one asking the questions the first time, it was... Also quite weird, but I, I guess we, <laughs> we tend to grow, grow into it, so that's okay. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. Um, I want to talk mainly in a little bit about the book that you wrote, actually, and that's the reason um, for our listeners and viewers about why I thought it'd be great to get Randy on the show. Uh, he's actually the author of the book, What Do We Do Now?, uh, which is sort of like a product manager's uh, handbook to strategy in the time of COVID-19. Um, So we're going to talk a bit about, well, a lot about that. But before we do that, I wanted to talk about Randy, the person first, right? Because this is, we always want, we're all about people. So we want to know more about you. So Randy, why don't you start by telling us about yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, so like you said, I'm a recovering music journalist. I came out of school and ended up finding myself writing about music for a while. I did in a bunch of places. And then I ended up with Amazon and helped them launch their music store in the US and UK as their first hip hop and children's wow. music editor. And there's wow. very little overlap in that. Yeah. But I was going to ask you, hip hop <laughs> and children, do they overlap? Okay. <laughs> well, it's mostly hip hop. And then they threw miscellaneous at me, which they said was also mostly children's music. And that was actually a ton of fun and it was one of the first times I really learned to to innovate in a business setting because I didn't want to just do Barney and Teletubbies and things like that I want to do something interesting so I got the idea to ask everyone I interviewed if they were a parent and get all the the people I knew who interviewed people to do the same thing if you're talking to a musician who's a parent what do you listen to with your kids And we got the most incredible answers. And those were the best recommendations we ever did. And that's back when Amazon was human powered or editorially powered. And that was probably the favorite thing I ever did there. Um, But yeah, so I did that for a long time. And then I came over to the UK and helped them launch and spent about six months getting the store up and running. And that was a great experience. And at the end of it, I said, you know, I like living in the UK better than Seattle. I want to stick around here. But I couldn't figure out how to do my job because I'd spent years and years in the States as a, as a writer and editor, and I still had the subject matter, subject matter expertise. I knew enough about the music. I knew enough about the technical side of how it all worked, the CMS and everything else at Amazon. Uh, and I knew how to work with everyone at Amazon. What I didn't have in the UK that I'd had in the States was the, uh, the relationships with other writers, with publicists, with artists, with people in the industry. And I didn't want to spend years building it up to get back to the same spot. So I started thinking about, what is it that I actually do? And it turns out working with writers and editors and designers and developers to put new features on and all these other people and helping them all create something that's greater than the sum of the parts and targeted at delighting our customers, it's a highly transferable skill set. <laughs> and it took me a few years to figure out what that actually meant and what profession that was. And then a few years later, someone offered me a job as a product manager and I asked them what that was. And I, they told me about Agile and Scrum and things like that. and I've been an interactive producer for years at that point, which is the same real job, but with no discipline, you're just thrown together. There's no team, there's no structures, there's no best or better practices. It's just you know winging it. And when someone told me what product management was, I said, I can't believe there's other people who do this. This is great, God sign me up. And that was, so oh, God, 13, 14 years ago now. So I've been doing it ever since.
0: Wow, very, very nice. Now let's rewind a little bit because I wanna start even before you started working right so you actually have a degree in by biochem- biology right
1: i have an arts degree in biology but organic chemistry and i were not friends <laughs> okay so let's, let's start there how <laughs> how does a
0: guy who's doing biology end up doing music that that's the part where which...
1: yeah so i was uh, going to school and not really into it anymore. And I was uh, started to work part-time and I did a minor in journalism and I needed to do an internship. And I went to the local paper where I was in university and asked them if I c- could work with them. And I ended up uh, being the only person in the office who talked to people on the music desk. And so I started talking to all the music, uh, all the record labels and everything else. And they ended up making me their music editor. And that was actually before legal drinking age in the States. So I had a fake ID just to get into the shows that I wanted to cover, and have a beverage as well, um, but uh, yeah. So I did that for uh, for a few years and really enjoyed it, and found out it was something I was good at and enjoyed. And uh, so I spent a few years, uh, about two years, going to school part time and working pretty much full time, and really enjoying that. And when I finally uh, left school, I d- had a ton of credits and just uh, said, "Okay, let me get my degree so I can get on with life." Um, I just kept doing things in the music industry and did that for a while. And up until the point where. I decided uh, streaming was coming in. The real reason I had started to, in the music industry was just to get access to stuff mm-hmm. um, and re- enjoyed working with it. And the higher I got, the less I got to work with the artists I really wanted to. I had to work with the most popular artists, not the most interesting ones. Um, <laughs> and it just got to this, this point where uh, I figured, actually, I could have access to music now. I don't want to go out five nights a week and uh, what else can I do with my life? Mm,
0: very interesting. And in your career in the music industry as well, so officially your title in Amazon was like project manager?
1: I no, was I was there? an editor. And then I did some product, project management towards the end of my time there when I was in the, in the UK. Besides, uh, when I came over from the US, I was the only person on the editorial staff that had, the, had no pets, no kids, and understood the background enough. We were just moving into, uh, oh, what was it, to XML. And so I had to explain the difference between HTML and XML to a bunch of other editors and writers and help them understand why we were doing it and the differences in markup and things like that. And then I helped uh, work with the dev team on a couple of features. So I took some project management off on the side. Okay. Okay.
0: Very cool. So um then the question i suppose i would want to ask you and and again guys i i just really want to understand and let you guys know you know who randy silver the person is before we get into you know talking about his book and what else he does uh so the question would be so you did project management and then you went into product management H- how was that transition like because in in most cases right um project management is seen as the sort of predecessor, you know, the era of the predecessor and product management is the sexy role now. Um,
1: how was that transition like for you? It wasn't very formal. I mean, I was I did some project management kind of on the side because that's what it was called. And I quickly found out that I'm a bad project manager because I'm not that fixated on dates and deadlines in in that kind of way. I'm more about trying to solve the right problem and trying to understand it. But I was doing it without the, the tool set and the framework of really understanding how to do research. and. And how to measure and everything else, so it was more of here 's a good idea let 's try and get it done, and let 's play around with it and then it was uh that thing of let's start talking to other people and popularizing the the idea and getting some support for it, and then let's get it built and let 's get it out there um, so it was that natural curiosity and the social aspects that were attracted me to doing it and trying to see the result of what I did um but Organizing people at scale and doing that as my day job in terms of uh, the kind of military precision and march towards something, not necessarily my strongest suit. So, mm-hmm. if you know, whenever I'm in a, a leadership role, I always make sure there's someone else on my team who has that personality type because it's not necessarily the thing I want to spend my time on.
0: Yeah, very good. So, there you go, ladies and gentlemen, the first tip of the day, right? So, if you're not really good at a particular suite or a particular part of a discipline, Go get someone on your team who can do it for you because that's Mm. what teamwork is all about.
1: Yeah, it's all complementary pieces. Very nice.
0: So then you stay in... Because you're saying you went from US to the UK... Uh, and by the way, everyone, uh, Randy drinks tea. So he's perfect <laughs> for the English weather, you know, drinking tea with the queen. So.
1: <laughs> well, you, you've got me in the morning. If it was evening, it would be bourbon, but that's a different one. <laughs> oh, wow. That, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> I'm quite quite far away from coffee. but <laughs> But anyway, so you stayed
0: on in the UK and you've been there ever since, right?
1: So I was uh, came over to the UK the first time uh, and then uh, after 9 eleven happened i 'm from New York originally, and my family was there and I wanted to be back with them. so I kind of ran towards New York at, at that point and I went back for a few years uh, and then I met somebody who's in the uk and uh, we got together and i've been back here for oh god about 14 years now okay. so I, there were about five years in between where I went back to New York. Right, right.
0: And in, in your time in the UK, you actually worked in the bank uh, where you became mm-hmm. head of product for customer experience. You became head of product at Sainsbury's um, as well. And you were even the interim CTO at uh, JTO Dynamics. Um, CPO, yeah. Yeah, sorry. I'm yeah, not CPO, technical sorry. enough to be a CTO. <laughs> sorry, CPO. Yeah. So I guess the question for me uh, here would be, it would seem like you, you had sort of reached the the pinnacle for the career for most product people right you've reached the top you've worked for big companies you you've worked for you know um different industry leading um, companies and then you decided to come out and do your own thing what what happened there
1: so uh Yeah, I've done about 10 years working with these very large companies, which had never been my intention, had never been my experience. My entire career up to then had been much smaller companies. Uh, You know, I'd been at Amazon when it was just a bookstore in Seattle and only had about a thousand people and just grew exponentially while I was there. Uh, And I've done that a couple of times and it's scale ups that are the thing that I enjoy the most. Mm -hmm. But uh, I was in, had just moved back to the UK and the financial crisis hit, uh, the last financial (laughs) crisis hit, and uh, I was working for a radio station group and they were cutting all their interactive team and rightly so. Uh, because it wasn't their core business model at that point. And I was looking around for something and happened to meet someone from uh, HSBC who asked me to come and help them change their culture. And it was a very unusual thing. I'd never done anything like that in the first two years there for me, were kind of awful in terms of I had no idea what I was doing. I was someone who was always trying to get something launched in six weeks, and this was a two-year process of getting it in budget and getting everyone on side and doing all the politics and then trying to roll it out over the next couple of years. And it was just, you know, it was a foreign land for me. And I spent a few years doing that and working with people there and helping them to understand what product management actually was and uh, then complaining so much that we didn't have anyone focusing on customer experience or around the tools our colleagues used that they finally said, fine, Randy, fix it. Uh, So (laughs) I did that for a while. And then it was just moved so slowly that I wanted to do something else. Mm -hmm. And uh, Sainsbury's a supermarket chain here in the UK came calling and asked me to help uh, develop a a brand new product team in that area and really enjoyed that. Uh, But after two years, I was looking around for what the next thing was. I had built and launched the team. I'd gotten our strategy in place, got our budget sorted, everything else I'd done in the org design. And wanted to move on to the next thing. It just didn't exist there. Uh, so i decided to find the perfect job or something close enough to it. And it didn't quite show up so quickly. And then someone called me up and said, Hey, have you ever thought about consulting? And I said, no, I like building teams and cultures over time. And then someone said, well, let me tell you about the day rate. And I said, well, I, I love consulting. <laughs> and so for the last couple of years, it's been a lot of that uh, while always keeping my eye out for the, the absolute perfect role.
0: Okay, very nice. Yeah, I think it's hmm, this is this is quite an interesting topic, right? Because um and, and we'll we'll come back to this when we start talking about your book and then COVID as well. But in today's world where COVID is in there, a lot of people are turning to consulting as a way to to sort of keep themselves busy, keep themselves occupied and you know, um at the forefront of things while waiting for, you know, that, that great job. arrive but at the same time some people never go back because you know consulting gives you the kind of flexibility and the kind of freedom that you know many other jobs can't give you so it'll be it'll be good to understand from your perspective having been you know in the working well in the sort of more corporate corporate world versus you know in the consulting world like where where you see the pros and cons of each
1: if you really want to understand a company and really want to understand customers and see change happen over time, you have to be per it's it's just no other way to do it um, and it's really changing the culture and growing people and uh, and making that real difference but if you want to go around and experience a lot of different things a lot of different companies a lot of different approaches uh, and you want to work in different industries and things like that then consulting is absolutely fantastic and if you're somebody who specializes in a particular part of the life cycle you know, not everyone is a startup product manager. Not everyone is, is a series A getting to, to the next level of funding and kind of person, so, and not everyone is an enterprise person and not everyone is an infrastructure person or a big project person and whatever. So if you have one particular part of the life cycle that you're really good at and that you excel at and really enjoy, then contract makes perfect sense for you. And if you can get the reputation of being, you know, a closer on that, you can do anything from three months to a year contracts and just keep moving and doing that. And that can be fantastic. UK is interesting, because they've just changed the, uh, the laws, although they've put it, uh, put it back a year uh, on the way that uh, consultants and contractors are, are taxed and it's made it significantly less attractive than it used to be. <laughs> um, so it's going to be interesting over here, but you know, it's, it's an interesting part of the industry. Uh, it, can work really well Mm -hmm. but if you want to build those long-term relationships you know you're always kind of forming and norming when you when you contract and getting in place and really trying to understand everything uh on the other hand you're the genius who's come in from outside, and everyone listens to you for those first couple of months. So it's that it's that balance of which is it, because you know everyone knows when you've been somewhere forever that your voice has slightly less of an impact, and sometimes you actually have to bring someone else in just to say the same thing so that other people hear it for a change.
0: That that is very true. And um, I was at this product meetup once, and we we were listening to a consultant from McKinsey um, talk about transformation. You know, a few companies was given examples. Um, and, you know, after after that meetup, some of us went out for, for drinks and we were saying it's very interesting, right? That a lot of the things that the consultant was saying is true and very valid. Um, but he was also saying that, you know, People inside are actually saying the same thing, but for some reason, when you don't pay that guy on the inside, you know, an extra fifty thousand dollars, they don't want to listen. But the minute you're paying this other guy fifty thousand dollars, anything he says, you know, has to be right. So.
1: Well, it's that terrible attitude. If you're still, if you're so smart, why are you still here?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true, right? <laughs> so I guess that's the, the the interesting conundrum between the two. The ends of the spectrum, so to speak. So let's let's talk about then a little bit about your podcast as well. So because I really want people to understand, you know, you you've got like so much experience, and I don't want to just you know say oh let's just jump straight straight into your book. So let's talk about how did you start the Product Experience
1: podcast? Sure. Um, so. I was—I got a chance to do a talk for Mind the Product at one of their conferences in uh, in Hamburg, Germany, and I wanted to get it really good. Uh, I knew it was a chance to do something, and I thought it was a really good talk. It was about uh, th- about the attitude product managers should have, and it was about uh, it was funny and it was interesting. It was uh, God's superheroes, superheroes and product, and product managers.
0: managers, yep, yep, and I that so one.
1: I wanted. Yes, I wanted to to practice it a few times. I didn't want to, the first time I did it to be in on the stage in Germany. So I went around to a bunch of product tanks around the UK back when you could still travel and do that sort of thing. <laughs> um, and I, you know, road tested it and and I got it into a really good place. And I was feeling really good about it. But what I was really impressed by was the quality of all the other people who shared the stage with me. All these people had put a lot of thought into getting their message into tight 20 minutes or so. And some, you know, some were better graphic packages than others, and some were better speakers than others. But they, for the most part, everyone had a really good message and was really uh, coherent about it. And I really learned something from a lot of these people. And I live in London and Product Tank in London is filmed uh, every month and it's a lot of the, the talks are put up online and the same thing with San Francisco and one or two other product tanks, but the rest of them, not so much and I had been a a journalist before and I'd worked in radio before and I was, I'm a total podcast junkie. Uh, and I just got the idea when I left Sainsbury's that I've got some free time. I'd love to do this. I'd love to go around and people had already done this hard work of putting the presentation together. I figured they'd send me the presentation. I'd write 10 questions or so, and we'd have a great conversation. And I already knew what they, what their story was. And I'd Mm -hmm. just be setting them up to tell me a great story. Um, And I tried recording an intro and outro by myself and I sounded awful. I sounded like the cheesiest American DJ you've ever heard. And I'd met Lily when I'd uh, done a talk at Product Tank in Bristol, which she runs, and we just hit it off really well. And I called her up and I said, I'm gonna do something really stupid. Do you wanna do it with me? And she said, yeah, sure. And uh, (laughs) I don't think she regrets it. Um, (laughs) But the idea was there's all these amazing talks that are out there. Let's help amplify them. Let's help get people to the next level and let's learn something. And there's so much that, you know, I've got a lot of experiences, a lot of things I know pretty well, but there's an awful lot of things I haven't done. And there's an awful lot left to learn. And I'm a total junkie for continuing my learning journey. So the idea of uh, Lily and I being able to call up the smartest people we know uh, and say, hey, tell us how to do this better. Uh, And sometimes it's directly applicable for us, but we're both people who manage other teams and coach people uh, and do things like that. And the idea that we can give them advice based on experts in the field is fantastic. And we've tried really hard to make sure that we've got a strong balance. It's really easy for us to get people in the US and UK because well, that's where our networks are. But we've tried really hard to make sure we're getting people from the rest of the world And having this really strong balance and we're doing okay on that we can always be better in. uh, There's always another form of diversity that you can be better on but we're trying really hard and we're always encouraging people. If you know someone who's got a great story, they don't have to be an expert in the field. In fact, those people are so easy to get on the podcast because they're mm-hmm. very self-promotional uh, you know, <laughs> like us. Uh, <laughs> but it's the people who just show up and have one thing that they've learned and know really well uh, or an interesting story or lesson that they've learned. Those people, it, it's much harder for us to find them because they're just not people we know on a day-to-day yeah. basis and we can't watch every, every video or every talk out there. So we're always looking for suggestions
0: fantastic that's a really really nice uh story about you know the product experience so for those of you who've not heard of it before i would highly recommend that you go check it out um the product experience you can find it on mind um, are you guys on on all the podcasting platforms as well you yeah are, right? we
1: don't do we don't do video we we record late at night uh, our time and we're just not ready for prime time at that point
0: <laughs> well i i just recently did did a talk at 10 p.m. Um, my time and after that I was just wrecked I was like oh man I'm so tired because yeah it was hard to stay energized throughout the day and then it at 10 finish at 11 some and then <laughs> so, that's true that's true um I also learned something new because I was gonna ask you why no video okay I have my answer now all right so now let's jump into the meat and you know the real reason why I think you being on this show will be so helpful. Um, And that's because you wrote a book, What Do We Do Now? A Product Manager's Guide to the Strategy in the Time of COVID-19. Tell us a little bit more about this book.
1: Sure, so uh, lockdown was just beginning. It was uh, March time here in the UK. And I was having conversations with a bunch of friends, uh, people who were in leadership roles, mostly at various companies. And they were all slightly freaked out about what are we going to do? How are we going to deal with this? How is my team going to work, and how are they going to work with their teams? How do I work with the rest of the business? What what the hell do I do? And I was having these really productive conversations with people, and they seemed to be responding to the type of advice I was giving them. And some of it was uh, the way I framed it. A lot of it was also there's some amazing resources from other people. Why don't you try this technique or use this tool? And people, again, they they latched onto it, and the, the conversations kept growing and growing. And I said okay, how do I have this conversation on a on a bigger scale? So I sat down to write an article and being an, a, a recovering journalist, writing wasn't really a problem. And I just sat and I kept going and going and getting longer and longer. And finally I realized, this isn't an article. What am I gonna do with this? It's a series of articles or something. And uh I wanted to get some you know some validation on on that I was saying something intelligent. So I sent it off to uh Josh Siden and Jeff Gotthelf for two reasons. One is they're absolutely brilliant, uh, and the other is they've got sense and respond press. And the whole idea is they publish short books that you should be able to read over lunch. Um and they're business focused, they're trying to get help first-time authors get out into the world. They're always looking for for more pitches, by the way. Um and I said, guys. I've got this idea. It's something that is very much of the moment. I can write it really quickly, but here's a sample chapter. What do you think would you do with me? And also, it doesn't feel right to try and profit off of something like this. Can we put all the profits to, to pandemic relief and, very surprisingly, about a week later, they said yes, and I said, "Oh crap! Now I've got to do it." <laughs> so I've spent a, a week or so trying to write it and and getting pretty far, and then uh, Josh is an absolutely fantastic editor, and he uh, ripped it apart in in a very gentle way, uh, and we went through a couple revisions, and about a month or six weeks later, it was it was out. It was published, and um, it was. It's very different from most other product books that actually tell you the answers to things and say this is the way to do it. This is what I've learned over years and years. the The idea here is we're in very uncertain times, and that's actually a superpower for product people because we're used to ambiguity, uncertainty. We're trying to deal with hypotheses and iteration, and that's something that most other people in the business are not as comfortable with. So, what can we do? How do we use our superpowers in this time? And it was the basic started with the basic idea of. Uh, all product decisions are made based on two things. It's an understanding of your customer, what is the problem that they have and how do they perceive it and how do they prioritize it? And then what does the market look like and how are we gonna solve that problem better for our customer than anyone else can? And if your customer's outlook and priorities are changing and the market is changing, where do we start so you start again at the beginning and you do discovery work on that and you go all the way through and you do lots of different iteration and uh we just talk about a whole bunch of different things there and what's been really interesting is uh so it was i'm sorry so it was much easier to write than a book that has answers this is a book that just has here's a lot of good questions and here's some frameworks and ways to get those answers Um, and what i learned that was really interesting over the first few months was i thought this was something that's going to be timely just for a little bit and what i quickly learned is it was uh, the question originally is what do we do now and now the question is what do we do next and it's the same thing it's it's product management in time of COVID-19 is just an amplified version of product management in any time of uncertainty which is well pretty much always Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah so the, be, sorry, before I continue, I just wanted to also highlight that the, the book that Randy wrote, right, um, all proceeds go to COVID charities, right? Um, I believe that, uh, uh, we, which charities will, will, will it's it be It's just
1: a, it, Just to make it easy, it was uh, one charity, it's Medicines on Frontier, uh, simply because they're global um, and they, the work they do is always fantastic. And it was just a very easy way to, to, to go forward to make sure we were covering what we needed.
0: Okay, fantastic. So, yeah, just I just wanted to highlight that, and that was one of the reasons why I felt like this would be um, something good to to also help to to bring attention to because it's not something that you know going to profit off, but it's something that's going to help people who need it as well. Now, coming back to the book, you were saying that um, you know this book was about what we do now, and then given the current situation, it's a, also a valid question to say, what do we do next? So in your opinion, having written the book, having seen it sort of evolve in that sense, what do you think are the main differences between trying to do product management pre-COVID and trying to do um, product management post or, or you know, in the midst of COVID?
1: Oh, that's a tough question. So uh, during and post is kind of the tough question. I'll get to that in a minute. But the difference <laughs> between pre and now is you had so much inertia built up in business and so many people operating on gut. You know, We had executives who knew what the right way of doing it was and knew what the right answers were. And they had very rigid processes and ways of doing it. Uh, and that's everything from change management processes to knowing what the strategy is without feeling the need to really validate it to uh, just presenteeism and the idea that you have to be at your desk and doing productivity theater being appearing to work and being able to focus on outputs rather than outcome because it's easy and it's just the way we've always done it and that's definitely changed uh, for almost everyone I've talked to mm-hmm. and there have been attempts to to make things work the way they did before and we all heard the stories about uh companies putting spyware on people's computers and uh, taking photos of them every couple of minutes to make sure they're working But the idea of being able to match people to outcomes, which fundamentally means that you have an understanding of what good looks like and what your strategy is and you're able to communicate it. That's always, again, been a superpower. I know I say that word a lot, but it totally is. And it's something that works really well. And it's something that if you had some facility for it before was amazing. And now it's an absolute essential. So I think that's the main difference between before and now. And uh, I also know people who, there's a retail chain here in the uk that needed to move from in-store shopping to curbside pickup and that's something that normally uh, my friend was telling me would take them about six months and god knows how many meetings and just so much pain to do it they did it in 48 hours and they knew that uh, it was something that was existential for them they had to do it they also knew that they would probably get it wrong and they'd iterate on it and you know or they wouldn't get it 100 right and getting it slightly wrong was not a bad thing. They had room to experiment and, and try things and change as they went along. And part of that is permission structure from their customers, Was the customers weren't expecting perfection. They were expecting any effort at all uh, to, to try and make things easier for them. Um, but a lot of it was just the change in attitudes of uh, executives and people who had spent a lot of time building up fiefdoms and power structures within the company were now willing to collaborate in a different way. So that's a, a massive difference. In terms of going forward, I think it remains to be seen, but uh, you know, there's any number of things that are still going to be a problem. You can do everything right and still fail. As we all, all know, uh, doing everything right just gives you a better chance of success. It doesn't guarantee success. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are going to be companies that say, we want everyone in the office and co-located, and that is our USP now. That is what makes us special versus uh, companies that are, uh working all or partially remote um and so it's going to be lots of different ways and as time goes on we're going to continue to evolve and change and see different things happen but it is just very different the the way that people communicate the the use of digital tools and and collaboration technologies the fact that everyone on a zoom call or or whatever uh video conferencing use is the same size on the screen is fantastic um there are still problems for people who communicate in different ways there's always the thing of uh, if you want to start a relationship it's so much easier to do it in person than to do it on video Um, but continuing a relationship on video is really not a problem and it's something that absolutely does work Mm
0: -hmm. okay and so to follow on in that line of of thought one of the things that is very difficult to do now that you know one, it's lockdown. Two, people are working remotely. Three, people are even working in a dispersed manner. Some people have gone back to their home countries, working remotely from there. And some are not even in the same time zone. How, what advice do you have in terms of doing things like, let's say, team discovery or brainstorming sessions? These are things we all took for granted pre-COVID. And suddenly you realize right now it's it's so different, right? Um, what advice would you have for, for these people?
1: uh before you even get to that there's a couple of things of go through all the meetings on your calendar because if you're a product person you probably have a pretty full diary <laughs> especially and that was was true pre-covid but especially now and we're scheduled up to wazoo um so go through every single meeting you have and i ask you go marie kondo on it say does this meeting give me value does it give me joy and if it doesn't see what can you do with that meeting? Can you turn it into an asynchronous status update? Can you make have it less often? Does everyone in that call need to be there? Or what can you do to shake it up and change it? And try and clear as much time out of your schedule to actually do work as possible. And that's, you know, for product people, a lot of our work is talking to other people. So mm-hmm. maybe we'll still have full calendars, but release other people to actually do work instead of being in meetings all the time. Uh, so that's, that's one thing. Um, Recruitment is going to be really interesting because it it really doesn't matter where you're physically located as long as you're in a time zone or uh, are comfortable working to time zone hours that your colleagues uh, have enough hours overlap that you can have a a good amount of collaboration and discussion. but there are amazing tools that allow us to do things uh, for brainstorming and things like that. And you know, brainstorming doesn't always work. There's a, a site called Liberating Structures that has all yes. these different techniques and games that is really fantastic. And it's just different ways of getting creative and unlocking things. Uh, and I've used a lot of these structures over the last few years, ever since I discovered it. And they're fantastic. Um, and I would just recommend using those as much as possible. Things like Miro and Mural are really wonderful uh, and help you with real-time collaboration and getting things in front of people. Because words, uh, you can still be talking past each other when you just talk. Uh, having something written down really makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've got uh, po- uh, product experience episodes coming out the next couple weeks uh, from when we record this with Matt LeMay and Adam Thomas. And Matt just did a talk at uh, Mind & Product Digicon about one page, one hour, the idea that don't work too hard on something, don't spend more than an hour or a page on something before you share it with at least one colleague to get some feedback and make sure you're working, that you're doing the right thing. And then Adam has a really great template um, co- about uh, the, the was it, um, it's the BLUF, the bottom line up front. I always want to call it the big lie up front instead of the bottom line. It's That's my mental glitch. Um, Wouldn't be too but, far from the truth. <laughs> yeah. But the idea is that it's not the big lie. It's the bottom line to get everyone focused on the same thing and make sure that everyone is actually agreed on something and get the contention out of the way early.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, very nice. Um, so moving on, and this is a lot less about the book uh, right now and more about what your personal thoughts are on the current situation, right? So um, we're seeing behaviors that are really different, right? So for example, there are some industries that are literally growing double and triple, uh, especially if you're in the online entertainment business, if you are in e-commerce, you know, things like that have just been, you know, going through the roof and it's been a real boon for them. And at the same time, other companies are really suffering because their business model has literally been blown out of the water. So what are your thoughts or rather, what, how do you see um, this very strange stage of life that we're in? Is this, is this the new normal or is this something that's just intermediate? Um, I actually ran a, a, a poll about this on LinkedIn, right? And uh, many people seem to believe that this is the new normal. Um, so I want to pick your brain a little bit
1: about that. Uh, given the politics of my home country in the States and where I'm living in the UK, I hope nothing about this is normal. Uh <laughs> And I think that, you know, we've got this pandemic uh, situation that has totally changed the way people are working on a day-to-day basis. I think there is going to be, this is not normal, but there will be a reaction to this. Um, and, you know, after September 11 happened, uh, everyone said, this is the new normal, and but a lot of it wasn't. And we mm. went back to a lot of the way we behaved before, we're social creatures. Um, I see in my neighborhood there's a lot more people getting together at restaurants and things like that. There's less distancing than I would like in some areas. Um, I think normal for us is is normal human behavior, but we will moderate it to a certain degree. Um, commuting was never normal that, 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 to the scale that we did it. And if it doesn't give us value the way that we want it to, we won't do as much. Uh, every company I've ever worked for has wanted to cut costs wherever they could. And one of the biggest costs is real estate. So if they can cut the number of desks, the number of floors, the number of square feet they have to have an office space, they will absolutely do it so long as they're getting value. Um, I think there will still be offices. Um, and whether those are always centralized or and whether you need to be there once a week, five times a week, once a month, once every, you know, something one week a month, whatever it is. We're going to do a lot of experimenting. I think what will change is the the layout of the office space in a big way. Yeah. I think there'll be a lot more collaboration space in offices and less just letting people sit at desks. Mm-hmm. because if you're going to be in there for most companies, then you, what is the value of you being there rather than being uh, remote? And that is the collaboration side. so if whatever the right balance is for you uh, for you and your company that's where you're going to end up, but it'll be a lot more collaboration and a lot more remote working by default.
0: Okay. But what about from a customer perspective, right? So for like easy examples, one I mentioned just now, people are buying stuff online, like in the past, right? Many people would always say, if you want the freshest groceries, you have to go to the supermarket and buy it. And now if you've experienced having fresh groceries delivered to you, you may not necessarily want to always go back to the supermarket, right? So that's one example. Another example would be, you know, there were things that you needed to do in person in a bank and mm-hmm. suddenly you realize that you don't really need to go to the bank. And if push came to shove, there were alternatives like digital banks that could help you do a lot of things that previously you'd go to the bank for. Do you think these trends are here to stay or these are just time of the, just, just now?
1: Um. I hate to give the product answer of, it depends, but, <laughs> so so I think for the most part, this is an accelerant towards things that create more convenience for people. Uh, but there's always going to be people who like that real, that that genuine feeling of in-person, of in-person shopping, of in-person contact, of going and picking up their own mangoes and making sure it's the right one and and things like that. Um, and I know for, for me personally, um, the the little shop around the corner that's got great fruit and veg that almost feels like an escape to me but it's also got brilliant stuff and i like the serendipity of going in there and and figuring out what i'm going to make for dinner and things like that which is totally different from an online shop Mm -hmm. uh online shop gives me a lot of convenience but it's also you know problematic in other ways um the other thing is you know, when, when lockdown first hit here, obviously no one was really ex- planning for it. No one had expected it. And I talked to people at a couple of the supermarket chains and they were all really proud of how well their systems scaled. The problem was the logistics didn't. So the site held up, the the software held up, but the delivery number of delivery slots was still very limited, and they weren't able to scale that very quickly. And it ended up being a very poor customer experience. And it wasn't the acquisition experience that I think uh, a lot of outs- people outside the industry would have expected it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, now over time you can, but you know if grocery chains were looking to scale oh two three four x over the next year or so, and all of a sudden it's 20, 30 20, x on for their online sales, that's just that's a massive infrastructure project uh, yes. that can't be done quickly, will it be done over time. Sure. And we were trending in that direction, but it's, there's it, only so fast we can accelerate, but I'm also seeing that the shops near me, the butchers and the, the fruit and veg shops really accelerating in their version of home delivery and local delivery. And there's a lot more neighborhood above in some places than, than I've seen before. And uh, so where that's possible and the, they have the tools to do that in a way that they never had uh, before in terms of do, doing online ordering. And it may not be things with huge amounts of choice, just sign up for a a weekly box. But, you know, if you want customer service, you already know the, your vendor or you can drop around or give them a call pretty easily. Then I mean, it's a lot different and sometimes a lot more satisfying than dealing with an Amazon or somebody like that. So, yeah, yeah that's it true. kind of goes both ways. I think there's opportunities uh, in every level.
0: Mm-hmm. And so how would you advise like product managers who are planning, you know, cause so did this, the, let, let me, let me, let me pull it back and explain a bit more. The question that I asked about whether this is the new normal or whether this is just for now is because I was thinking about how do product people plan for the future, right? Because Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of people who are saying that, you know, A, this is the new normal. But there are also people who are saying that, look, all data that you collect or all trends that you see now in the time of COVID cannot be used because you don't have a before, something to compare with. Mm -hmm. There's no baseline. And at the same time, we don't know how that is going to continue post COVID, you know, hopefully that soon. Um, so yeah, so that's the that's the conundrum that I was thinking about, and I figured this would be a good, great question to ask you as well.
1: Yeah, I was on a panel a couple of months ago, and somebody asked uh, uh, myself and the other the other panelists, should I be doing any roadmap planning now? Because, you know, it's not normal. Should I wait for things to get back to normal before I, before we do the planning? And our reaction was, are you insane? Uh, it's never normal. You can never know ex- predict the future and know exactly what it's going to be like. Right. So uh, one of the things I, I talk about in the book, and this is something that I never knew had a proper name until Josh Siding called called me out on it, uh, and then I looked it up and did my research, is this idea of syn- scenario planning. And it's uh, it's a management consultant thing where you take a bunch of potential likely scenarios. uh, So there will be no vaccine ever. There will be a vaccine in six months, in a year, in two years, uh, and a few things like like that and say, okay, what are the various implications of this? And then you say, okay, if this, then this is the right business play. If this, this is the right business play. And these are leading indicators that's going well and leading indicators that's going badly. And you do that and then you just come back together every depending on what your cycle time is, you know, every mm-hmm. month or two and say, how are things going? Or what do we think right now? What's the right business decision to make based on it? And you just, you deal with a, a certain amount of uncertainty and you do iteration and in your planning as well as in your execution. But to to what you're saying, there's gonna be opportunities at every part of the market and there's always going to be disruption. Um, The idea that you can do things at that local level, as well as at the global level, there's opportunities at both places. And you can be an incredible platform play by enabling all the local shops to do things really well. Or you can be somebody who works with a local or regional chain and you you have different tools and availability or different customer attitudes that give you an opportunity for purchase. So the thing to always think about is going back to, who is your customer? What is their problem? How do they prioritize that problem? What do they, you know, how much money are they're willing to spend on? So you understand the opportunity space. Mm-hmm. And then again, look at the, the market because that's going to change. There's so many companies that are going out of business and regulations that are changing and norms that are changing. So you have different ways of satisfying that need within the market and making the claim to your USB. So being really aware of that. And then just understanding your positioning and the success stories you have and is it that we're very personal? Is it that we're really useful? What is the the thing that makes us special? Mm-hmm. Um so it is a very much an it depends answer, but it depends on what is it that you're trying to accomplish.
0: Mm. Yep, yep. Yeah. So the the again, you know, coming back to where my hit space hit space was at is because a lot of, especially, and this is more in relation to bigger companies, not so much the smaller companies. Um, they tend to want to have projections, right? They they love projections of the future, right? How much we're gonna get? What is our um, our margins gonna be? And what is our profit loss gonna be? And and the thing is, you know, in in the years past, you could do that, right? You could sort of project, but now we're in a, such a weird space, like. Um, you know, an e-commerce company is having a two X, three X, 10x growth, that's probably not gonna be a very smart idea to project that's gonna go even bigger than that post. Right. So that that was the thing I was I was thinking
1: about. Yeah. And part of the, part of the problem there is you're talking a lot about public companies and what is their actual product. And a lot of times their product is their stock and their valuation. So they're doing that so that they have a story to tell to investors. Um, And that they can work, uh, manipulate sounds is the wrong word, because I don't think they're doing something necessarily naughty, Mm -hmm. but they're trying to maximize their their valuation and their return for investors. A lot of times that is their reason for being. If you look at a lot of companies, uh, they'll have a vision and a mission, but the mission is actually maximize shareholder return. And if that's the case, they're trying to do these projections based on that. And when you have a real lack of certainty, it is problematic. But uh, I'm not going to pretend to be a CFO and the best way to to uh, yeah. structure a, a balance sheet for the market or tell the story to the market. So, But I think that's one of the, the challenges you have there and why they're so rigid on projections and things like that.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. So I guess if you are a product manager in that situation where, you know, you're still going to have to come up at the end of the year, because I'm still hearing stories of people having planning for next year and they're trying to do projections that it just sounds so crazy to me. Like, how, how do you even try? It's like trying to have a crystal ball and predict. It's, it's
1: insane. I like the, uh, the, the approach that Lucy McLean uh, talked about in, uh, at a, at a, she did a talk at a, one of them on the product uh, conferences uh, and she also came on our podcast a while back. She talked about portfolio theory and the way of portfolio investment theory works, where there's a certain amount that is probably pretty predictable. There's mm-hmm. things that are pretty stable and the things that you say, okay, we want to keep the lights on, keep this moving and do maybe a 10% return on this would be incredible. So that's, what, 70% of your investment in portfolio. And then you've got the rest of it going into moonshots and more shots. And that's where it goes into Ken Norton's whole 10X type stuff. <laughs> uh, but you manage those things differently. So the things that are core to your business, that are stable and that are looking good, you put a certain amount of money in and that is relatively predictable and you treat it as such. The things that are riskier, that you only need one out of 10 or one out of 100 to hit... Yeah. You just manage them in a totally different way and you manage your investment and your time in them in a totally different way. Uh, But it's being really conscious of the work that you're doing, which bucket does it fall into and which governance does it fall into. And that's something that especially bigger companies get bad at because it's communication at a scale that is really hard
0: totally agree and that's great great advice i think it's always good to understand what you're trying to achieve and whether you know this is for the cash cow or this is for for your moonshots, and yeah how you're planning to do it so um yeah for those of you who are listening and you're a product manager and you're being asked to come up with crazy predictions um yeah try to manage it in a way that makes sense because there are certain things that can be done to say that, you know, pre-COVID, this is what it worked and this is how it's likely going to continue. And there are things like, look, we pivoted and this is suddenly so successful. How are we going to continue to try and take this to the next level? So I think that's really, really good advice from from Randy. Now, still continuing on the theme of, you know, COVID and product. One of the trends that I've been seeing, and this is one of the trends actually that um, early on when many countries were going into lockdown, Um, I actually said would happen, but I'm not really sure why it happened. So again, you know, picking on your brain is that there were in the beginning when it was in lockdown, there were many companies who managed to survive the lockdown. But then Mm -hmm. we're also seeing that post the lockdown, there are also the companies who survived the lockdown who are not surviving this recovery period. Why do you think this is the case? And, and um, let, let me try to sort of narrow it down to I, I'm seeing this happen in the product space. Um, ergo, um, product managers who are still losing their jobs, you know, companies seem to be doing okay. They've weathered what seemingly is the worst with lockdown, but they don't seem to be able to escape the recovery period.
1: So I don't know what the uh, government interventions in Asia were, but in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and U.K., there was a lot of uh, very specific intervention to try and help keep companies and keep people afloat. And as that's starting to to wear off, Uh, Mm -hmm. companies are making very different financial calculations about what they can do. And, you know, people originally thought, oh, we'll lock down for... Two or three months, and then we'll come out of it because we'll have herd immunity, which is crazy, or or we'll have had such a successful lockdown that it won't will stop transmission, um, and it just hasn't happened. I know you know the 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 rate has gone way down in lots of places, but it's starting to be second phases and, and second waves in some places as well. And I mean, I do have a biology degree, but I'm not an epidemiologist, and I'm not a, I do not know anything about this. But uh, yeah, it's just one of those things. No one planned to have their business so affected for this long. And it's systemic. Um, you know, if people aren't going back into their offices, for example, one of the things that's being talked about a lot here in the UK this week is uh, if they don't go back to their office, then all the little sandwich shops and restaurants that cater to the office crowd are going to go under. And yeah. if they go under, what happens to all the people who were renting to them? And so on and so forth. And it just keeps exactly. going and going and going. Um, this is—we built our entire economy on certain models, and those are changing. So, uh, I'm not surprised that different companies are either uh, facing into reality or finding new realities every few months as they as they start to say, "Oh crap, this is going to change. We didn't project it to work this way. We hoped for more of this kind of recovery." Uh, and it, there's no use being to to. Uh, projecting too much doom because you might make the wrong decision. You know, if you're running a company, you're trying (coughs) to keep it going as long as possible and trying to maximize what you can do. And you're always trying to to hope for the best, especially because you're responsible for an awful lot of people's employment. And being an optimist and trying to keep things going and seeing if a miracle happens is not necessarily a bad thing.
0: Mm -hmm. Very interesting point of view because I would have thought that you know being a realist would be A better option but maybe you're right you know being optimistic in such times may help you think of something that keeps the company
1: afloat yeah I think Mm -hmm. have you ever met a sales director who was a pessimist
0: (laughs) oh yeah that's that's a tough one no (laughs) (laughs) probably resigned or retired so (laughs) okay last last question with regards to this right so we know that they are continuingly continuing is that even a word the people who are continuing (laughs) to lose their jobs within the product space, what would your advice be for them? Oh, I wish I had some. Um,
1: it's, it's a really hard one. I mean, there's always gonna be problems that people like us need to, to help solve. Um, I think the things we do are absolutely superpowers. Uh, a piece of advice someone gave me recently, and that I've given other people, but it's always good to hear it, is don't get so hung up on the title because the most important thing is product thinking and taking that experimental and iteration approach. And when we put ourselves as the custodians of it and say, we're the only people who can do it and it has to be a product manager, that's not very healthy, because there's only ever gonna be so many jobs for us. Uh, But if we take other roles within companies that deal with our specialization, and that can be general management, it can be uh, research, some people are more technically minded, but it can be any number of other things within the company. If you can do that uh, and take a product-led approach to it, that's not a bad thing either. So think about what is it that makes you special and what can you offer to a company? Uh, If you are going on interviews, always ask what is the problem that this company needs solved and how can I best help them solve it? And if you can figure out a good way of telling that story, then you can make yourself valuable regardless of what title you end up with. I do think product managers will continue to be valuable, um, in that we're the ones who are helping the companies figure out the best way of using resources and not wasting them. Um, but we're certainly not the only ones who do it. Wow, that that is
0: really really sage advice. Um, I, <laughs> no, really, that 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 was. Amazing. That was, wow. Thank you so much for that, uh, Randy. And with that, I think we're going to close the book on COVID. And speaking mm-hmm. of books, uh, please don't forget um, support Randy the book that Randy wrote, uh, What Do We Do Now? A Product Manager's Guide to Strategy in the Time of COVID-19. As I mentioned earlier, all proceeds from this book will go to charities to help um, COVID. So yeah, do, do yeah, maybe you want to tell people where they can get it, Randy?
1: Yeah. It's, uh, I think it's mostly on Amazon. It's probably on some other places now too. It's available as an ebook only simply because we didn't want uh, to ask anyone to print it, typeset, and deliver it when there was a risk of transmission or anything like that. And we want to get out as quickly as possible. But if you want to find links, uh, I've got them all on my site. It's com slash book.
0: Fantastic. I will also be putting it in the description so you can also check it out there. Um, and so with that, we now come to the last part of the show, um, mm-hmm. which is usually my favorite part of the show is we talk about a song. Um, <laughs> and this is very interesting because you were obviously in the music industry and you also cheated because you didn't choose one song. You actually chose a YouTube uh, mini coin set that had three songs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So t- tell us a little bit more about um, the, the artists and you know, why did you choose that video?
1: Yeah, so if you made me choose one song, I probably would have chosen uh, something else, because there's a there's my favorite band of all time is Yola Tango, and then a few, uh, I, I swear I'm in the video, but I've never been able to find myself for a tribe called Quest Scenario. So I probably would have chosen one of those if I could have. Mm-hmm. But um, I chose Lizzo's NPR Tiny Desk Concert, and it's because... Over the last year, the thing that makes me happy, more than anything else, is music. And this music is infectiously happy. You cannot help but smile when you watch Lizzo uh, singing and watching everyone else reacting to her. And it's just fun, it's melody, it's rhythm, and it just bangs. So uh, I, yeah, if I'm ever feeling having a really bad day, putting that on just makes me feel good.
0: Yeah, plus the fact that, you know, the way Lizzo just carries herself, she's so bubbly and and so candid. Um, yeah, I had a lot of fun watching watching that that video as well. You know, um, <laughs> granted, you know, just just a word of warning for those of you watching the video, um, <laughs> there are some profanities in there, so you may not want to watch it in front of your like you know four year old kid unless you're okay with that. But
1: come okay. on, it's lockdown; they've heard worse. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's true. That is true. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was a really fun video, uh, and as usual, it would have been shown somewhere up in the video when Randy said it um so it's uh, the Lizzo NPR Tiny Desk concert I think she performs the three songs because I love you Truth Hurts and Juice um so yeah and that is actually um the last part of the show so Randy I would like to ask you whether you have what would be you know your final thoughts um for today's show if you had any for our listeners and viewers <sighs>
1: I think I'm going to recommend a, a free book, another book, then uh, something else, is it, uh, or actually it's a free PDF. Uh, so it's something called The 11 Laws of Showrunning. And this is a guy named uh, Javier Grillo Marwa, who I'm probably torturing his name. He is a uh, TV producer who worked on Lost and, and a bunch of other things. Okay, okay. Um, and he wrote this thing a a while ago it's like 25 pages and it talks about what it takes to be someone who's good at producing and running a a tv show and it's all these things of um communicate early and often expect varying levels of confidence uh all these kind of things and the basic idea is what does it take to run a, a whole mini empire to get them to produce one great piece of content every week And it's incredibly complicated to do it. And that sounds almost exactly like our job. The only difference between what he says and our stuff is once they finish producing an episode, they don't have to support legacy. Uh, Some (laughs) legacy decisions in terms of storyline, but once the episode's out the door, it's out the door. Whereas every decision we make, we also have to think about uh, how we're gonna continue to support in the future. But in terms of stakeholder management and team management and dynamics, this is just incredibly brilliant. And because he's a professional writer, it is incredibly entertaining as well.
0: All right. So thank you so much for that. Um, As usual, I will put the links in the description, whether it's on the video or on the podcast. So do check it out. Um, I just want to thank um, Randy for being on the show. And I really appreciate his um, candidness in discussing a very tough topic. Um, Granted, to be honest, I I didn't really want to talk that much about it in the beginning because I felt that there was just too much conversation around it. Um, But I felt that as we've gone past the lockdown period, and we're now trying to understand where we're going and what's going to happen, I think it's really important that this conversation happens now. And I think everything that Randy has said still holds true. Um, And for that, I think it's that makes this episode that much more interesting. Um, And I'm sorry that it wasn't, it's not the typical lighthearted type of interview. um, But I hope that it was helpful for of you and i really hope that all of you will continue to stay safe stay healthy and try to stay happy i know it's tough um a lot of us are going through different um phases you know different difficulties but i think if we all try to keep each other happy and stay connected i think we'll come out this much much stronger so thank you have a nice day and i'll catch you guys on the next episode Bye bye